It's a Monday mailbag. We've got your questions, including what does Shohei Otani to the Dodgers do to Michael Bush? Let's talk about it. You are Locked On MLB Prospects, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Yes, welcome on in to Locked on MLB Prospects, your home for all things minor league baseball. I'm your host, Lindsey Crosby, award-winning baseball writer and podcaster. Thank you for making this your first listen every single day. We're proudly part of the Locked on Podcast Network, where it's your team every day. And today's episode is made possible by our friends at FanDuel. Make every moment more, because right now, new customers get $150 in bonus bets with any winning $5 Moneyline bet. That's $150. Bucks if your team wins, visit Fando.com slash locked on to get started. So the news, massive news over the weekend, right? Shohei Otani to the Los Angeles Dodgers, 10 years, $700 million. Uh, it's not going to be a $70 million per year hit on the CBT because there are significant deferrals in the peak. In the contract, supposedly more than half, that's going to bring everything down, uh, the cost to somewhere between 40 and $50 million a year on the luxury tax, so that they obviously can go out and get some more pieces around Shohei. And there's still a lot to go with that. The Dodgers haven't announced the piece yet. They're making a trade on Sunday with the Yankees to clear two spots on the 40-man roster so that they can put Shohei and reliever Joe Kelly on the 40-man roster. So they're moving two 40-man players to New York for a non-40-man prospect. I don't know who those players are. That's not been announced at time of recording. But that's not really the big thing here. The big thing here, what we have to figure out, is what adding these players, in this case, adding Shohei Otani, what that does to the playtime of some of the top prospects and the former top prospects in that system. And the two guys that I'm thinking of specifically, Michael Bush and Miguel Vargas, two infielders, both got chances in MLB last year. Both of them didn't do that great in their MLB looks. And Vargas got more consistent playtime than Bush. But what happens next which one of these guys would be more likely to get moved? When you look at Michael Bush and Miguel Vargas, at the major league level, Bush played mostly second base. That's where Vargas played. Uh, And it was, I think it was 600 plus innings for Vargas. It was about 220 for Bush. Again, Vargas got the job out of spring training. and was playing that early and then got sent down because he wasn't hitting that well. In 81 games, in MLB, Miguel Vargas was batting 195 with a 305 on base and a 367 slugging percentage. Seven home runs and 26 extra base hits, 38 walks to 61 strikeouts, and three of five on stolen bases. He was fine defensively at second, had a 982 fielding percentage, committed five errors in 613 and two thirds innings, but the issue wasn't the defense, the issue was the offense. And when he went back to AAA, he did fine. 60 games in AAA for Miguel Vargas. Batted 288. It's 288, 407, 479. 25 extra base hits, 10 home runs, 46 walks to 57 strikeouts, and a perfect 8 of 8 on stolen bases. The thing here is 
if you're going to make a trade, it feels like Miguel Vargas is going to be more, is not going to be as desirable as a Michael Bush. And Vargas is seen as a very good, just like a pure hitter, right? Uh, the Baseball America uh, scouting report for him prior to last season, because he has now graduated from prospect eligibility, it gave him a 65 grade on his hit tool and only a 50 grade on his power. And his speed actually coming in uh, plus, a plus runner had one of the better sprint speeds on the Dodgers in the brief sample he got in 2022. And his issue was he didn't quite have the defensive work to do third base. And so he was playing second. And it still feels if a team is going to make a trade for one of these two guys, it's probably going to be Michael Bush. And I say that with the caveat of MLB teams have different methods, better methods of valuing players than we do. Uh, They have their own formulas that they plug in statistics. The formulas are better than anything we have publicly, like a steamer projection, anything like that. The data that they use is more comprehensive than what we have access to. And the overall result is more accurate than what we're going to have. So we don't understand exactly how MLB teams project out the future performance of these players. If you're looking at from the perspective of who would have more value based on their performance in AAA and their performance in the major league level, it makes sense to think that Michael Bush would get more of a pass for what he did in MLB. Miguel Vargas, and yes, he had an injury in spring training, but Miguel Vargas, in essence, came up, had the job, consistently couldn't perform that well, and got sent down, and that's when Mookie Betts really started playing a lot of second base. Michael Bush, by comparison, he got 27 games in MLB, but they were all in spurts. It was broken up over multiple different multiple different samples. And so he never really got a chance to get into a groove. When you look at his overall stat line in MLB, it was not very good, right? 167, 247, 292. Two home runs, five extra base hits for Michael Bush, eight walks to 27 strikeouts, and one for one on stolen bases. And then, but again, it was very sporadic playtime. He came up in late April, and he got seven games before going back down to Oklahoma City. He came back up in mid-June and got eight games before being sent back down to Oklahoma City. And then he came up in August, and he got 12 games before being sent back down to Oklahoma City. Really hard for a player to adjust given the the lesser playtime and not given a chance to just have the job every day. He played some third, he played some second, he played some first. Played a little bit of left field as well. But when he was in AAA, his performance was markedly better than what Miguel Vargas did. Michael Bush in AAA, 98 games in 2023. 323, 431, 618. 27 home runs and 57 extra base hits. 65 walks to 80 strikeouts and 404 on stolen bases. The issue you have when looking at these guys at the major league level is obviously Shohei Otani's your DH. You have Freddie Freeman at first, 
They've announced Mookie Betts is going to be the primary, not the everyday, but the primary second baseman. They re-signed Max Muncy, so he's going to be at third base, and then Gavin Lux projects to be the shortstop, but neither of these guys can play shortstop anyway. And so, unless you stick one of these guys in a corner, you, you send somebody to a left field. Miguel Vargas, in 2023, played seven games in left field in Oklahoma City. 56 and two-thirds innings, he had an error in that stretch. Unless you send one of these guys to the outfield, you don't have playtime for either one. But Michael Bush has more of an... It's easier to explain away Michael Bush's major league struggles. And Michael Bush had better performance in AAA than Miguel Vargas did. From a statistical perspective, from a counting stats perspective, using the rate stuff because it was only 81 games for Vargas compared to 98 for Bush. All of that. And Vargas's hit tool isn't as flashy or as uh, appreciated as Bush's power tool. Now, that's more of an us thing than it is an MLB front offices thing. They're not always susceptible to that kind of stuff. But it really feels if one of these two guys is going to get moved, and some of this does depend on the team, it feels like if, let's say, the Dodgers trade for Shane Bieber, Miguel Vargas is probably going to be part of the ask from the Guardians because they like the high contact guys. I really think if that trade were made, they probably wouldn't take either one of the infielders and hopefully they'd go for some outfield options. But if they were to take one of these two, you could see Miguel Vargas being the ask from the Guardians because they prioritize contact. But it would be very easy to imagine Michael Bush and let's say two pitchers, uh, a Nick Frosso and a Kyle Hurt. That three-player package being the majority of the return going to the Chicago White Sox for two seasons of Dylan Cease, right? And it's something where Michael Bush is not great really anywhere he plays. He had a 920 fielding percentage in AAA at third base, 13 errors in 538 innings. He had a 990 at second base. Either way, they're there to hit. And the White Sox, it feels, are a type of organization that would want the power. And it feels like more organizations would want the power hitting infielder than they would the contact hitting infielder. So interested to see what happens. Interested to see which one of those guys ends up getting dealt because I, de- I doubt they're both kept and either converted to the infield or just used as backups going forward when you have long-term security at first base, now second base, and DH from that big three. In just a minute, Couple different questions here about the Texas Rangers. We'll talk about them next, right here on Locked on MLB Prospects. But first, today's episode is brought to you by our friends at FanDuel. FanDuel's asked us to talk about their NFL specials and what's going on right now, but I'm going to hijack the ad read because I want to talk about what the signing of Shohei Otani has done to the World Series odds going into Saturday, Saturday morning. The Atlanta Braves were the favorite to win the World Series. They were at plus 600, I believe, and the Dodgers were at plus 7 or 750, depending on what time you looked. As of Sunday night, the Los Angeles Dodgers are the favorites to win the World Series. They have moved up to plus 550. The Atlanta Braves have moved back to plus 650, and they are in second place. But there's a sleeper team that you may want to get involved in. Reliever Will Smith has been on the last three 
World Series winning teams. He was on the Atlanta Braves in 2021, the Houston Astros in 2022, and the Texas Rangers in 2023. He just signed a one-year deal with the Kansas City Royals. So they are at plus 17,000 in the World Series odds. It is the third worst odds of winning the World Series. They're only ahead of the Oakland A's and Colorado Rockies. But Will Smith is the magic ingredient that brings MLB teams a World Series. So get in on the Kansas City Royals before those odds change. It's incredibly easy to use the app. Go to FanDuel.com slash locked on to place your bets now with FanDuel, the official sports book of the Locked On Podcast Network. Okay, a couple questions we had from, one of them was from YouTube, one of them was from Twitter, one of them was via email about the can, the, the Texas Rangers farm system. And reminder, if you have questions for the mailbag, show ideas, segment ideas, things like that, tons of ways to get them to us. I'm on Twitter at Crosby Baseball, shows on Twitter at Locked On Farm. We have a link tree in the episode description in the show notes that has everything else. But I was asked, where does the Rangers farm system rank amongst the different organizations? And this is a good question because I think it comes down to how you feel about a couple different players, right? The consensus top three players in this farm system, just from everywhere that I can see with the caveat of both Baseball America and MLB Pipeline and Fangraphs have not updated with the 2024 top 100s. These are all using the end of 2023. So these were, I think, Baseball America's was published in like mid-September and then they updated as guys graduated, things like that. So with that caveat. But the consensus top three in that system, Evan Carter, Wyatt Lankford, they're... Their consensus both top 15. I've seen some places they're both in the top 10. I've seen some places to have Carter over Langford, some places Langford over Carter. But either way, it feels like both of those guys, again, pretty consensus. They're some of the top prospects in baseball. Both of them should get significant run in 2024. The question really just comes down to when do they get promoted? Where do they play and who gets squeezed out of that outfield mix, assuming everyone is healthy? Leody Tavares is the center fielder. And is it something where Langford DHs? Carter's in left. Tavares is in center. Is Carter in center? Uh, Tavares on the bench while Langford plays left and they use somebody else at DH because Mitch Garver's a free agent as well. What happens? But that's all well and good. The top two are there. Sebastian Walcott, the international free agent is a consensus top 100 prospect. Everywhere that I've seen, they signed him in January 2023 out of the Beha- out of the Bahamas. He went to the Arizona Complex League. Started off slowly in the DSL, but they moved him up anyway. And he's already for his size, he's for his age, he's already pretty big. 64 is his height, 190 is the weight, perfectly reasonable weight, but the frame where depending on how the physical development goes, you could see him potentially have to move off of shortstop. Plus arm defense is, for the most part, kind of consensus just below average. And so it feels like he's not going to stick as a shortstop. Does he kick out to third? Does he go out to the grass? What happens? I'm not sure. The, the speed is above average now, but there's time for that to change. A lot of this 
where this system ends up, and I've got it somewhere between a top five and a top 10 system. I don't, truth be told, I was waiting until after the winter meetings to sit down, waiting for some trades to happen to figure out where the organizations would rank because the last thing I wanted to do was sit down and rank them all and then immediately see guys traded out. We're expecting some trades for Tyler Glasnow, for Dylan Cease, things like that. I haven't sat down and done my farm system rankings yet. And from what I can tell, a lot of the prospect apparatus has also not done that yet because we're expecting trades. But off the top of my head, I have them as a top five to top 10 system. And I think where they fall in that top five to top 10 depends on your evaluation of three players. Pitcher Owen White, pitcher Brock Porter, and I've seen some places that have one and not the other in the top 100. I've seen, like, for the most part, when I look around, I see four top 100 prospects in this system across the different ranking sites, but some of them have Owen White as the fourth player. Some of them have Brock Porter as the fourth player. How you value the one that is not in the top 100, I think impacts whether they're closer to five or 10. And then your opinion on Jack Leiter. We talked about him on October 4th. In that episode, I'll try to throw it up here in the corner on YouTube. And if you're on audio, you can go back and find it in your feed. We talked about him in the first segment. It's very interesting to see what's happened to Jack Leiter. He was incredibly dominant in college, right? His last year at Vanderbilt, 2021, he started 18 games, went 11 and 4 with a 2-1-3 ERA. Had a complete game shutout in there as well. It was 110 innings with 179 strikeouts, 14.6 per nine, 245 walks, 3.7 per nine. You could see a little bit of the issues though. His home, he gave up 14 home runs that year, so 1.1 per nine innings, and some of that struggle has continued. He spent all year in 22 in AA Frisco. He went straight to AA Frisco. ERA was over five and a half. Went back to AA Frisco in 2023. Spent most of the year there. Got one final start in AAA Round Rock to end the year. Taking out that AAA Round Rock start. Three and a third innings. Not pretty. Eight hits, three runs, two homers. He got blasted. Taking that out. Jack Leiter's stats for 2023. Two and six, again, record doesn't matter, but things that stand out significantly like that do get our attention. Two and six with a 507 ERA in 81 and two thirds innings, 110 strikeouts, so 12.1 per nine to 47 walks, 5.2 per nine, and 14 home runs, 1.5 per nine innings. And this is the thing with Jack Leiter is. Okay, there's, there's two things. One, he did go on the development list after his July 7th start. He went a third of an inning, a, not, a, not a misread here, a third of an inning, five hits, six runs, five were earned, two walks, just completely fell apart, right? He went on the development list after that. When he came back from the development list in time for his September 3rd start, in those three, in those, I'm sorry, four starts, in the four starts that he got after coming back, the, the August 27th start was the first one, he went 16 and a third innings with a 3-3-1 ERA, struck out 25, walked only four, and gave up only four extra base hits, but 
three of those were homers. The issue here, I think the trick here, this is where we always talk about, the everydayers have heard me talk about this. This is where the transition from pitching five days a week, or from pitching once a week to pitching every five days can sometimes have unintended consequences for a pitcher. Jack Leiter does not look like the same pitcher that he was in college. The fastball doesn't look as good as it was in college. Uh, It doesn't have the same type of movement. He doesn't throw it up in the zone as much as he needs to. Uh, He has a curveball. He has a slider and then a changeup. And they don't look the same as they looked when he was in college. And I don't really know why. Because you look at the combination of stuff, and he should be better than he has been. The fastball gets pounded. The velocity is good. He can run it up to the high 90s. Like All of his stuff is much better than the results. And so this is something where we may need to back off a little bit on how good we think he's going to be. He looks like he might profile more as a number four or so than potentially a number three or higher. And this is... I think 2024 is a very important year for him. I think he'll be in AAA most of the year. But how he pitches early in the year and then what they do with him at the major league level, I think will give us an idea of how the organization values Jack Leiter. In just a minute, I want to talk about tanking because we saw the draft lottery last week had some really interesting results. We'll do that next right here on Locked on MLB Prospects. Final segment of Locked On MLB Prospects. When you're done with this show, we'll take you straight over to Locked On Sports Today. We've launched the first ever national sports 24-7 streaming channel on YouTube. It's covering the top sports stories of the day with the local experts of Locked On, plus national shows like this one covering every single league. So when you're on YouTube, go to Locked On Sports Today, subscribe to the first ever national sports 24-7 streaming channel. So the draft lottery... Last week, we did a show, obviously, I did a a, a quick video for YouTube from like the the hallway outside the room when the Guardians got the first pick, the Reds got the second pick, and then we did an episode for the next day all about it. And the big takeaway that I have from the draft lottery and the last two seasons now that we've seen it is I think it takes away some of the incentive to tank, right? Think about the Oakland A's in this situation, right? The Oakland A's would, if not for the lottery, would have had the number two overall pick last year. They would have had the number one overall pick this year were it based solely on record. They were 110 wins and 214 losses the last two seasons. They deliberately tore down the roster. They traded almost every single notable player. They are getting, they are paying less in payroll than they are receiving in revenue sharing money from the league. John Fisher is just pocketing the rest. And yes, it helped drive fans away so that they could make a petition to relocate the team and all of that. They would have picked number two last year, number one this year. Instead, they picked number six last year and they're picking number four this year. Based on the roster as we can see it now, as free agency is still continuing, obviously, but 
who expects the, the Oakland A's to actually spend significant money. They're probably going to be a bottom three record next year, but because they've been in the lottery two straight seasons and they're a revenue sharing recipient, they can't pick any higher than 10th next year. The Washington Nationals had that same rule this year. If you pay into revenue sharing, which the Nationals do, you can't be in the lottery two consecutive years. If you are, that's going to also going to come up for the Chicago White Sox because they're in the lottery this year. They can't be in the lottery next year. And they project to have one of the worst rosters in baseball and one of the worst records in baseball. And so the Oakland A's would have picked number two last year, number one this year, and probably top three next year. And instead, it's going to be sixth, fourth, and outside the top 10. And the flip side of that is the Cincinnati Reds went 82 and 80, and they're going to pick second, right? They almost made the postseason, and they're going to pick second. The Cleveland Guardians went 76 and 86 while breaking in a ton of young pitchers, and they're going to pick number one overall. It's the first time in their franchise history they've done that. Where is the baseball incentive to be as bad as possible if you're not only not guaranteed the number one overall pick, you're not even guaranteed to be in the top five or six? Where's the incentive? Now, financially, there is an incentive, obviously. We saw it with the Oakland A's. John Fisher can just be as bad as possible spend as little money on payroll as possible and pocket all the additional revenue from the revenue sharing, from the national TV deals, which is estimated to be, I believe, 60 or so million dollars. It was 60.1 in 2020. So why, where's the motivation to be as bad as possible if it doesn't guarantee you the number one overall pick or even a top five? Do I think that John Fisher is going to all of a sudden spend money because of this? No, I think he's one of the exceptions. But to me, the draft lottery already disincentivizes tanking a little bit, but unintentionally, or maybe even unplanned, we're going to have a bigger anti-tanking uh, method introduced into baseball, whether they like it or not, and that is the collapse of the RSN system. So the regional networks that air baseball, we've, all, we've seen the stories about Bally Sports going through bankruptcy. Some of the teams they stopped broadcasting last year, the Padres, the Diamondbacks, and MLB picked up those broadcasts. MLB backstopped the money the teams were going to receive last season and made sure fans could watch the games. Going forward, the MLB team is not guaranteed any money from Major League Baseball. The the Padres are not guaranteed any amount from Major League Baseball. It's going to come off of They're direct-to-consumer signups to stream the teams. Diamondback, same thing. And we've seen other teams cite that scenario when discussing payroll decisions or roster decisions. The Twins are supposedly trying to save a little bit of money. The Mariners, that's probably one of the things they're going to cite when they explain why they've shipped out so much money this year. Uh, The Padres, the part of the reason they traded Juan Soto was, one, they lost the primary owner and John Seidler, who was actually pushing to spend money, but also they have that uncertainty behind their finances because of the TV deal going away. And as that continues to happen, Bally Sports is only committed to the bankruptcy court to broadcasting through the 2024 season. All MLB teams who are currently with Bally will have to find another broadcast partner 
after 2024. And some of them may not even have Bally for 2024. What MLB has gone to instead has been that direct-to-consumer model. Quick refresher on how the RSN model worked. That channel, that cable channel, was part of a bunch of cable packages, and every cable channel has a dollar fee attached to it. It's called a carriage fee. That's the amount per subscriber that the company, that in this case, that went back to Mally or whoever, and that's how they paid for these TV deals to the teams. Now, you're going to have direct-to-consumer. So if you tear down your team and you intentionally lose a bunch of games, it's going to be harder to get fans to sign up to pay to watch your team. Those local television deals, which for a lot of teams come out to about a quarter of their revenue, the, the, the ones that we know about, that was guaranteed. You got that dollar amount whether the team won 100 games or 50 games. That, they did not change the amount of the payments based on the performance of the team. It may have come into account when they renegotiated the, the next deal. But you got that money no matter what. Now, if you tear your team down and you tank, you're going to get less subscriber revenue on that direct-to-consumer model. And so MLB may not have intended for this to happen, but there is now an even bigger anti-tanking provision being introduced into the landscape of, M of MLB. And there's a lot more problems than just that with MLB. A lot of it is cheap owners wanting to just pocket money and not spend money. 2022, the Pirates payroll came out to about $61.2 million. The Pirates local TV deal was $61 million. And so they weren't spending all of the additional money that came from ballpark revenue on the roster. And by ballpark revenue, the gate, concessions, merch, sponsorship. They weren't spending all of that on improving the roster. They were spending that either in other places or pocketing that as profit. Guess what? After 2024, that $61 million is gone. Yes, every team will get around $60 million in national television revenue, but you're going to have to put out a competitive product if you want people to sign up $20 a month, $25 a month, whatever it costs to watch your team on a streaming app. Fantastic week this week. A couple fun stuff, a couple fun shows coming out for you. In the meantime, if you have feedback, comments, questions, anything like that, I'm on Twitter at CrossFit Baseball. Show's on Twitter at Locked On Farm. Lots of other ways to reach us. They're all in the episode description. They're all in the show notes. Until tomorrow's show, remember, it's always a great time to pay a minor leaguer.